Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, you have Mark Updegraff, who's a everything in real estate, it seems. He's started on with investments and had, um, has been a broker for, for a while, but also owns a property management company that manages 450 doors. And most of all, he's an investor and developer. So we're going to get a lot of cool perspectives and see how some of these different aspects of the industry work together. But um, start, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So let's start with the first question that we always ask. What's your first milestone in real estate? My first milestone was purchasing an investment property. It was just a single family, pretty boring vanilla. Uh, it was in a speculative area, but you know, being young and going and patroning some of the businesses over there, I could see that there were some grassroots efforts to really bring a little bit of revitalization back. So it was a risky play. Um, you know, I remember walking through the house after closing and I had purchased, purchased, uh, purchased it from this little old lady and she had stashed a knife in just about every corner of the house, every windowsill. I remember going around with a bucket and filling the bucket about halfway up with these little steak knives that were just hidden all over the place. And I have a feeling it was just so if she ever got cornered in the house because somebody broke in, she'd be able to quickly grab a knife and defend herself. So it was kind of an eye-opening experience. You know, she had lived in it for like 30 years and she was low, lower income, but uh, she she kept up with it as good as she could. Uh, we went through, we repainted, refinished the hardwood floors. I, I did the kitchen and spruced up the bathroom, nothing fancy, just a little bit of lipstick. And I got that sucker leased out and became kind of bored because, you know, now I've got all this time where I was fixing the unit and I wanted to keep going and I wanted to get some more rentals. So that's how I jumped in. I just bought a single family home and got it leased up. Awesome. That's pretty cool. And so um, I guess coming from there, what was the next step and, and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So I use that as a benchmark. I'm a, I'm a math guy, so I'm all about the numbers. And I think what a lot of investors don't realize they, they analyze the heck out of these things on paper but the, a lot of the reality is in the operations, right? So we can do a pro forma before we buy something, but how it performs in reality could be totally different. So I use that first one as a benchmark. And then I have beat, I've like weaved and bobbed on both sides of the cash flow spectrum where I'm going for more cash flow or I'm going for a better location. The older I get, the more I go for better location. And not to say that the cash flow model isn't relative, you know, it's done well for me, but. Now where I'm at, I would prefer to have less eviction costs, less deferred maintenance. And in today's environments, uh, you know, with the court systems, it's getting harder to get people out. And uh, I live in a very uh, tenant friendly state. So having a better tenant where I don't have to worry that they're going to damage it. I know they're taking care of it. I know they're going to pay rents is a little bit of peace of mind. So that's kind of my path. You know, I've been just acquiring as many units as possible. And Rochester is a market that's so abundant with opportunities that I've had a lot of people that have come to me over the years that wanted to invest here. And I've helped them alongside myself get into a number of units. And that's pretty much how I built the management company. 
they wanted somebody that they could trust to place their asset with. So they could experience, uh, you know, just like I am the ability to build their portfolio, you know, maybe do some cash out in, in a shorter term, maybe like three to five year horizon, but you know, we're purchasing it and we're underwriting it really conservatively when we buy it, that when we, we cash out all our equity, we're still cash flow positive. Uh, so I think I kind of live in an anomaly where that's actually possible. There's a lot of places across the country where you can't do that, but I've been fortunate to be here and, um, that's, that's helped me a lot in growing my business. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned you're a math guy. I think you also, um, I've, I've seen that you're also, you had a start at NASA, but um, I guess if you want to talk a little bit about your background in math and kind of how that's informed your approach to real estate, at least, um, you know, starting out and you might think about deals differently. So I'm curious to see what your, what your approach is. Yeah. So math was always my favorite subject, you know, matrix algebra, um, multidimensional analysis was what I did, uh, as, as a grad student. And when you think about real estate, it really is multidimensional. You have a lot of different data sets, but a lot of the dimensionality is, is actually stuff that you're going to discover in the field. So those data sets are, you know, up to your interpretation. So you've got to get into the field. You've got to see the asset. You've got to know the neighborhood. You have to know other assets in that space. Um, so, you know, having that mathematical background and that analytical background has really helped me, but, um, ultimately a lot of those data points are coming from experiences versus, you know, data on the computer that you can query like taxes or insurance and stuff like that. Uh, so just having that, that background and being able to synthesize all that stuff together has really created an opportunity for me to find areas that do. Uh, tend to appreciate more in the short term relative to other areas. You know, so I'll be looking at things like price per foot, gross rent multiplier, doing full full blown pro formas. But uh, really, the nitty gritty of it is getting into these MSAs and breaking them apart, and being able to understand how the different sections of the MSA work together. And so I try to have things compartmentalized into pretty small chunks. You know, we might be talking about like ten square blocks. Sometimes it might be less. Sometimes it might be more. You're not going to know what the block looks like until you get into the field and you drive the streets and you start seeing the properties and you can really understand what it looks like. Uh, so I've, I've done that over the years and, you know, my map is always evolving. So each year I might go in and I might change the blocks and how they're delineated. They tend to be bound by arterial streets, parks, waterways, and stuff like that. And if you watch how the interplay between one neighborhood and another uh, work, you can position yourself in an area where there's going to be some spillover. There's going to be some creep, right? So if we've got a really, really popular class A that maybe it wasn't even class A until recently, you know, might even started at a class C, it got some of those seeds planted. We had some businesses coming in. It becomes edgy. It becomes kind of trendy. Uh, people start planting their flags, but it's still pretty troubled. Eventually, you know, the trouble is going to be gone. If you look at it, in a sector, right? So in, in a particular sector, then you get a bunch of investment. Now all of a sudden that sector is class A, the prices are going through the roof. So having that ability to figure out where you want to be in order to capitalize on that has been huge. So if I can identify that area and then I can position my holdings and my clients' holdings in that area, we end up seeing a ramp up on the price per foot side, you know, the appreciation side of anywhere from like 20 to 50%, typically in like a three to five year horizon. 
And uh, that's what I've done. It works pretty well across the spectrum of asset classes. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a small, a small multi or a large multi, it doesn't matter if it's commercial, it kind of rising tides lift all ships. So uh, whenever I've identified an area like that, that becomes my focus. And there might be multiple areas in one MSA that are all have similar characteristics. That's where I'm targeting. That's where I'm really looking for those deals. And then I'm willing to pay a little bit of a premium to get into it because I know that the premium is still going to be cheap compared to the price in three to five years. Awesome. That's, that's a great. And I guess the first example I can think of that um, is like East Nashville. Like I know East Nashville is used to be like a place where there's cool bars and it's like a fun little spot that you might go, but wasn't like the highest quality living place yet. But now it's like blowing up where it's like super expensive and just, you know, the, the hottest, hottest part of Nashville, it seems. Um, and then it's creeping out more. And I guess I've had a developer on who, who thought of the, or noticed that similar trend and built his whole business around it and it's, and it's paid off. But um, in turn, to get a little bit more specific, I know you talk about gross rent multiplier. Um, I, I know the metric. I don't tend to use it. I tend to think in terms of cap rate, I guess, is there a reason why you look at gross rent multiplier? And then how do you use gross rent multiplier to identify these, markets that have, I guess, maybe in the path of progress or the opportunity that you're, you've been discussing. Yeah. It's just a quicker metric to use instead of digging all the way into a cap rate. So, um, I can use it to make zones where the average is going to be in a, ra a range, right? So if I've got my 10 block segment, I can tell you that the average across that 10 blocks is going to be a particular gross rent multiplier. And it's just quicker to get that number than it is to get a full-blown cap rate. I'd have to do spend more time on analysis, right? Um, it's just so relative. The gross rem yeah, it's relative. So uh, once I have that map of GRMs, the cap rates are going to be uh, proportional to the GRMs. So I'm basically looking at the same thing. It's just a quicker way to do it. So I use that as my quick test to get those values, to make those segments in the marketplace and then when I'm actually evaluating the properties, I am jumping in and doing the cap rate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I guess, for example, I guess the gross rent multiplier, it, I guess it's hard to say because um, if you don't have the the cost outlay, it's hard to say, but it's like theoretically it'd be the number that you get would be if you didn't have any costs, how much, how many years it would take to repay your entire basis, right? That's essentially what gross rent multiplier would, would, would tell you, but um, I guess, so, so yeah, how do you use it in terms of how do you know that a certain gross rent multiplier in, indicates a certain thing that you're looking for? The lower the gross rent multiplier, the more cash flow something is throwing off, right? So you, we just know by doing the math and looking at it where we need to be as far as a gross rent multiplier goes, you know, numbers change as we get different differences in our pro forma, like interest rates or whatever. Uh, but the GRM stays consistent. So that's why I like the GRM. Um, I agree it's flawed in that you know, one property might have certain operational expenses while another property might not, right? So the GRM is not going to reflect that. But if you look at an average value, most multifamilies, um, you know, depending on what you're looking at. So let's just say we're looking at like two to four family. Uh, most of those, the uh, taxes are paid for by the owner, but the heat is paid for by the tenant. And, you know, so there's a lot of consistency in the way that those are operated. So the gross rent multiplier tends to be okay when you look at it on average, but there might be a one-off property where 
there's one heating system for the four units and the landlord's paying for that heat bill. So that gross rent multiplier would kind of skew it a little bit, but you know, again, right. we're looking at a, a larger area and we're looking at an average. So just having that, um, having that, having that overlay, now I can identify a good opportunity, right? So if the overlay is like an eight gross rent multiplier, it, it's a nicer area, it's more expensive mm -hmm. to live in. But if I can find a deal inside of that, where I do a quick check and the gross rent multiplier is like a six, then there's going to be some extra value in that acquisition if I can get it at that price, right? Because the average is eight, I'm buying it at a six. So it's just a real quick way to identify what you're looking for. But ultimately, we're always going to go see the property and factor in some of that real life stuff that we need to see, the roof, the windows, the siding, whatever it may be, so we can make a, a value or a buy decision when we're in the field. Yeah. So you get, I guess get this is a little more tangible, like, what you're discussing reflects something profound about the industry and the way you look at investments in real estate that we are looking at as investors, we look at the properties as investments, right? As financial vehicles, right? So you're literally trying to figure out, or if you use the gross rent multiplier, you can literally see that this is relatively cheap compared, or I guess the rent is below market, right? So you could raise the rent and that would, you know, hopefully the the asset will be in in a quality that you can actually raise the rent to equal the 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 rest of the neighborhood. But just the um, I guess that it shows there's like not an arbitrage opportunity, but something similar. Um, but the I guess the idea is, I guess yeah, to make it that's like a way to make it more tangible. But in terms of um, identifying those properties, is there like are there are there trends for for what would would lead to that? Is it just owners who or don't know what the property's worth or what the rent should be, or, you know, what do you, how do you usually identify a property like that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, there's going to be a variety of reasons, right? Um, some, some simple ones to explain would be, you know, maybe you get a broker that's from a different town. Like we'll have brokers from Buffalo that are representing sellers in Rochester. I don't know how the seller in Rochester got hooked up with a, a broker from Buffalo, but they did. And that agent just wants to sell the property. They don't understand the nuances of the different neighborhoods. And so when they do a, a comparative market analysis, they're looking at it on a broader scale than I would, right? I'm going to dig, I'm going to really dig down into that MSA and I'm going to pull my comps from those delineators from within those delineators that I've already made. So I, I just know the market better. So you're going to have people that just aren't as good. They don't know the market as well. And they just want to make a sale. And then they have a seller that also doesn't know, and that's trusting the professional. So there are going to be opportunities that come up like that. Um, you know, maybe you've got a spot where somebody died and the heirs just need to unload the property. They don't really care. You know, typically that property is owned free and clear. They want to get the money as quickly as possible and move on with their lives. You know, they're still mourning the loss of their loved one. So that could be an opportunity that it trades for less um, you can find stuff off market where the person's owned it for 30 years. They have no idea what the current market is and you're giving them a price that they're, they like, you know, they're very comfortable with it and you can move forward and you can get a little bit of value that way. Uh, so there, there's a lot of different circumstances, you know, obviously you've got wholesalers that can bring you deals. You can go to foreclosure auctions and you can purchase things at discounts. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity to find these discounts in the marketplace if you know what you're doing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so you also, um, I guess, are are on the sales side and and do some. Um, I don't know if you're you're still actively doing it, but I guess what have you? I guess I want to yeah learn more. How have you branched into other businesses, and then you know how's that's come around to 
some of the bigger developments and, and bigger investments that you're, you're focusing on now? Sure. So I think a lot of the time, uh, what I've learned over the years is that the people that really do well in real estate, they're willing to take a calculated risk that a lot of other people really aren't because there's no proof that what they're doing is going to work. They're kind of putting it out there. They're trusting their gut. They're going for it. And then, you know, hopefully they're making a nice profit. Uh, when you talk about a real estate marketplace, you don't know what the market is going to be in the future, right? And so when you make a buy decision today, it's going to lock in any profit that you make tomorrow. And the people that do well are willing to pay what might look like a premium today, knowing that there's going to be an even bigger premium tomorrow. So I've I've found that you know being able to understand that concept not listen to every single person around you that thinks that you might be making a mistake. Don't maybe don't bet at all on one deal, right? But as you get comfortable with what you're doing and you see that, okay, I can understand a market, I can take a little bit of a risk. And then if I get my reward, now I can go ahead and do that again. And I can be a little bit more confident that I know better than most other people do and again, it's all going to be a function of the market. So you have to understand why you believe the market's going to do what it's going to do. Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Is it going to stay the same? So that's one of the questions that I propose to people that are kind of on the fence about what to do with real estate. You know, we all know that real estate is a great place if you're in it for the long term, right? If you look at real estate over a 30-year time frame, you're going to do very well. A lot of people don't really want to look at it like that. They'd like to look at it at a smaller smaller scale. And even so I, I say, look, if you're making a buy decision, what's the answer to this question? Do you believe that the markets, that the real estate is going to cost more tomorrow, the same or less? If they tell me less, I say, then don't buy. That's it. You're not, a, you're not a buyer. If they say it's going to be the same, then I say, well, if you're going to hold it for long enough, then I think you'll be okay. And if they say, I think it's going to go up. Then I said, then why aren't you buying? It's going to be more expensive later. Right. And I don't tell them what to do. I know what I believe. When I believe the market's going up, I buy. Right. So, and that's what I've done. And that's what I've stuck with my guns and it's worked really well. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And so you're also um, been talking about doing some developments. Um, I guess, how did you get into that mindset? And I guess, what's, what's different? What are the things you're, what are the new things that you're learning or that you've learned? Yes. Yeah, so I, th I think this is kind of a national trend in that you know, real estate has just gotten more expensive over the last years. Uh, you know, over the last ten years specifically, a lot more expensive in the last three to five years, and so some of the space that we used to operate in has really, really thin margins. I'm a uh, location-centric investor, and if I see an opportunity, I'm going to grab it. So I've I positioned myself pretty well when the prices were low and I grabbed assets that I can now work on and I can fully, you know, I can add a lot of value and, and increase their value. Um, so that's what I did. I purchased a couple buildings and they're on the slate for redevelopment to, to turn into apartments. And the, the main driver was that I could see that the opportunities that I had been looking at uh, were drying up. And I wanted to make sure that I had some opportunities moving forward. So that's why I positioned myself the way I did. Cool. And so let's get a little more, uh, if you don't mind, into some of the details. So um, you're looking to do resi conversions. I guess what is the, like, what do you, how do you know that a an asset is a viable target for that? I know there's a lot of differences with commercial assets versus um, 
residential, especially like you need to have a certain number of windows, you need to have certain egress, um, you need to have the floor plates can be completely different from an office. I guess what are you, you know, how do you think about that? Yeah, I'm looking for something that can be easily converted. So the building that I purchased downtown had been a furniture manufacturing facility originally back at the turn of the century before it became an office. So it's built like a tank, uh, you know, that's clear span. So as far as uh, demoing it, demoing the existing office, I didn't have to worry about any kind of load bearing stuff. I just went through and had guys rip everything down and throw in a dumpster. So that, that was pretty easy. Uh, that's kind of what I'm looking for. You know, if it is already a multifamily, I'm going to probably be a little picky on the unit size, you know, cause in today's marketplace, I don't really want super small units personally. I want the units that are like 650 to 750 square feet where I can get a one bedroom versus a studio. Um, so I'm looking for things like that. So if it is like a building with all studios, I want to be able to maybe re repurpose it, you know, say it's got 50 units that are all um, studios. Maybe I can make it like 31 bedrooms or something like that. And I want to make sure that it's got a layout that's conducive to do to doing that. But th those are my personal preferences. Um, if you can find a more industrial building, then it's typically kind of like the clean slate approach where you can just get it all open back up to empty space. And then you can have your architect come in and you can go back and forth with the architect and see how many um, different layouts you can figure out that work to fit with your, your zoning compliance. It makes a lot of sense. And I guess what, is there a specific asset class you're, you're most bullish on? It's, I think we're getting the impression that, you know, you're a market specialist. So you just see opportunities in any shape and form in a certain market. I guess if that question if you don't want to apply that question broadly, is there a, a, something that you're bullish on specifically in a market like the, like Rochester, the ones that you focus on? I'll look at any opportunities. Like I'm an equal opportunity investor. If it makes sense, I'll invest in it. You know, I've got some colleagues that really like office space right now. Um, they're seeing some value add plays where they can purchase A-class office and, and uh, lease it out at a little bit lesser of a rate to kind of compete with the B-class and steal their tenants. So our A-class in Rochester is under-rented relative to our B-class as far as occupancy goes. Uh, so, you know, that's a good play. You know, you've got people that are running around doing the short-term rentals. I haven't done any of that. I probably will stay on the sidelines for that. I don't know how that's going to hold up as, as far as like if a recession were to come, how that would look. And plus there's so many people that are pouring into the space that I don't know if I want to jump in now when it becomes kind of saturated, but uh, I do like multifamily. Um, I like self-storage. I'm working with a, a gentleman here in Rochester that's been doing self-storage for about 35 years uh, as like kind of a coach mentor. And uh, we're looking to do some development down in Pennsylvania on the self-storage front. Um, I like industrial. I think that, you know, with things coming back to the U S we're going to have a demand for industrial, the different commercial brokers that I know all say that, uh, if I've got any industrial, they can lease it up in a heartbeat. So, um, yeah. and I, I love residential, I love residential, so I'll never go away from that. I'm really good at underwriting it. And, um, I'll always, I'll always keep trying to find good deals, but, uh, here in, in my marketplace, it's, it's tough right now. The sellers haven't capitulated to the current interest rates and they're still looking for yesterday's price and things are just sitting on the market and not really anything is uh, trading. Yeah. It seems like a, a, tr a wider than a Rochester trend. It seems pretty, pretty national. Um, but uh, I guess in terms, in, in, in light of that, I guess, what is your view 
Um, I know no one has a crystal ball, but like, what is your view on the, the current economic climate and, and where, where the Fed is? And, and I guess if you have a view on, on inflation or where this, with this may pan out, um, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are. I think inflation is going to be persistent. You know, they've got the rates hiked, but they can't hike them high enough to really combat inflation the way that they would like to. I don't see it getting down to 2%. I think, you know, 4% will probably become the new norm where they're just trying to get it to 4%. Uh, so I, I see the value of the dollar continually getting eroded over time. Um, you know, in as far as multifamily goes, I think there are a lot, and even single family, there's a lot of money that went into that marketplace with, um, with, without fixed debts. So there's going to be some distressed sales. I do think there's institutional money on the sidelines waiting to pick those things up. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a dip, but there's going to be some people that are buying at a discount. Um, there's a lot of institutional money that also went into single family homes in specifically down South in like uh, the Carolinas and, and stuff like that, where they, their model I think was highly flawed. They were, you know, they hired a lot of third-party companies to do the underwriting. And during the boom, those third-party third-party underwriting companies, you know, they needed to hire bodies to handle the volume. And I don't think the underwriters, the underwriting company, um, really did that great of a job. You know, I know from some people in in those companies that they underwrote properties at rents that were not attainable. You know, they underwrote them at $2,400 for a single family uh, house that is actually leased for $1,800. They're on floating debt and the uh, valuations are also about 20% lower than when they purchased them. And, you know, there's a lot of properties that were purchased that way. So uh, I, I don't really know exactly what's going to happen in each market. I think each market will be a little bit different depending on how many risky things happened in those marketplaces. There's definitely going to be opportunities for people to buy that uh, if they're sophisticated and they can do their own underwriting and do some, some good underwriting, they'll be able to pick up some other people's mistakes for a discount. Yeah. I'm sy sympathetic to that, especially given that institutions in a lot of these places, as you said, um, were responsible for bidding up the prices. And that was partly the concern of all the people who where, you know, writing these, these articles like, oh, the institutions are buying up all the properties unaffordable now. It's like, well, I mean, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of the high prices they're, they're willing to pay, even if it meant, you know, pricing out. It's kind of like that institutional imperative. Oh, like or single families are great. Let's buy it at whatever cost where it's like, no, in real estate, what you buy anything at is the thing that you want to focus on, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, that, um, perspective um ready for the lightning round yeah let's do, let's it. do it all right so if you have any superpower what would it be mm, probably underwater yeah, be able to go underwater for as long as i want breathe underwater yeah, breathe, yeah yeah absolutely that's awesome cool um you scuba dive i do cool love cool. it yeah um, so what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? I really like the fountain, the fountainhead. Um, it's not really a, a real estate book. It's about an architect, but it's got a bunch of characters in it besides just the architect. It's really, really well written. It's a really good story. And I think so, if people like uh, real estate, they'd like it. They a hundred percent will like it. So I've bought this book for my mother, my sister, my and three of my best friends. So like everyone in my my house or everyone who I talk to on a regular basis is reading it right now. And I bought, I just bought a 19 
42 Readers Club edition of the book. Like this really, really old, like like leather bound um, copy of the Fountainhead in original. Like it's it's beautiful. It's like my one of my most prized possessions. But um, yeah. Nice. I, I'm a, Atlas Shrugged is I, I read Atlas Shrugged before I read the Fountainhead. So Atlas Shrugged, I think it's my mm-hmm. favorite book. But um, I'm actually in the middle of reading Philosophy. Who needs it? It's um, it's okay. Ayn Rand's. It's a series of essays Ayn Rand wrote um about philosophy and her philosophy particularly. And it's uh, yeah, everyone essentially needs philosophy. That's that's kind of the the goal or the, the payoff. But but I really recommend it. And also Anthem. I just finished reading that. But Ayn Rand's my favorite author too. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So she what motivates you? Too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's she's amazing. And, you know, existentialism makes such a compelling, not compelling point, but like it kind of feels like existentialism is like a knockdown um, like argument where if like, yeah, everything's absurd. Like, can you really make meaning of anything? And like, obviously that kind of leads to nihilism. But then when you have Ayn Rand out here saying like, but like, look at your life like you're actually like living a life like you're not acting you're not acting in the world as if nothing matters you are waking up every day and you're doing the things that you do right so it's like in a way her argument against you know just believing that nothing matters is that you you have to have a philosophy that can also be applied to your life like you actually you have to live your philosophy and just that idea is powerful because it kind of snaps me out of that philosophy rabbit hole i'm a philosophy major as well just just uh put it out there cool. but you know so i, I yeah. really appreciate her i got plato and aristotle that's that's what these the stack of books nice. is <laughs> um awesome so uh what motivates you to continue every day uh, my family and friends you know i love uh teaching my kids um you know, my father taught me a lot about business He's an entrepreneur. He's been in business for over 40 years as an owner operator of a trucking company. Um, you know, and, and when I was younger, I thought, oh man, this guy just works so much. You know, he works so many hours. He didn't hire any, he didn't hire his first employee until I went to college. And so I have a deep respect for the amount of work that it takes to launch a business. And I know there's people that have launched companies and done very well and they make it look real easy, but I think for most people, uh, it's just, it's an enormous amount of work that needs to go in to really set the foundation of a company. And I definitely wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the leg up that he gave my sisters and I by, you know, sacrificing all those hours into his business. And, um, yeah, so I want to, I want to have that same, I want to have respect for that. And I want to try to give that back to my children. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I've, some hardworking parents as well that uh definitely you know kind of i think inspired me to be the hardworking person i i I am today so that's awesome Uh, and so what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps yeah that's a good question i i really like the route that i took and i think it's um i think it's more predictable you know, a lot of people that get into real estate investing think that wholesaling for some reason is going to be the avenue they want to go. I don't think that's the best avenue personally, maybe for a few people, but if we're talking like on a broader scale, getting involved as a realtor really um, taught me a lot and it gave me a lot of additional income that I could put back into real estate investing. You know, in corporate as a scientist, I was limited in what I could make if I wanted to go 
on the managerial side, I could make more, but that would have been a career uh, path. And I wouldn't have just gotten all that money instantly. I would have, you know, sacrificed 30 years of my life to, you know, maybe double my salary of a scientist, you know, a scientist was pegged at about a hundred, a hundred grand, no matter how long you work there. And as a realtor, you can make a lot more money than that, you know, and you can take those proceeds and you can push that back into your passive investment portfolio and you can, you can build and you can scale quickly. So, you know, it's kind of a weird piece of advice. I'm not a salesy person. I never thought I would be in sales, but uh, doing it really paid off. So I would say if you're not opposed to it, try it. Awesome. So since I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So what's the question you have for me? Hmm. Let's see. Why don't you just tell me about your uh, five and 10 year goals? Yeah. Well, my five and 10 year goals. Well, um, it's, uh, I do, I, I need to be more clear as I, as I can, but it's, it's, it's evolving, but so there's things that are stable in the five, and 10 years goals, but the way to get there and what, they will tangibly be as the, is the difficulty as, as you mentioned, right? Like there's a million ways to be in real estate. So it's like, I don't know exactly what active income I'll be, be earning and you know, how that will, how that will be coming in. But I know the goals are in five years to be um, owning, at least having bought my first um, larger multifamily property for, for myself. Um, and, you know, by the time I get, from five to 10 years, I guess 10 years or 21, by the time I'm 31, I want to have, um, I think like $200,000 of passive income per year, at least. Um, I think I can achieve that, but I'm just thinking like, what would be like a nice, really comfortable lifestyle where I'm like fully replacing my, um, you know, like a high earning active income, right. Where I can fully have the option to do whatever I want with my time. Um, I'm probably going to spend my time working, but it would be nice to know that I have like a backstop of, of income that I can support myself and maybe support a family as, and then as that grows, um, be able to support a family and send, send kids to college. If that's still something that people do in, in 40 years, but, uh, but yeah, definitely thinking long-term in terms of, um, you know, that kind of idea of, of having a stable passive income will be very, um, will offer me a lot of, of flexibility and, and, um, peace of mind in my, in my life. And also love real estate. So I just love the idea of providing for people's physiological needs with, with, uh, providing housing and also just the idea of, um, you know, finding undervalued properties and undervalued investments and, and creating value and, um, helping my investors and myself that way. That's really good. You're you're way, way ahead for your age. That's awesome. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, I got the time value of money on my side. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, Mark, it's been great having you on the show. Um, anywhere, any way people can reach out to you or, um, you know, learn more about what you got going on. Yep. So my cell phone is 585-314-9790, 585-314-9790. I'm also at raise capital r-a-z-e capital.com uh feel free to shoot me a text and i'll get you my calendar link and we can uh, set up a time to talk awesome well appreciate that um and i guess i'll give you an opportunity to leave any final words with uh with the audience 
I think we covered it. I don't I don't have any final words. You really, you got everything out of me. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. Um, well, Mark and everyone listening, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support, and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.